Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So it's, um, it's quite a gift to have a community like this right in your own backyard. I'm assuming no one drove two hours to get here other than me. <laughs> and um, yeah, there are many people in the world and in the country who don't have something like this. Who don't have a place where they can go and um, hear wisdom teachings. hear different perspectives on what it is to be human in a way that shifts how we relate to ourselves, to one another, and to life. So it's a very rare opportunity, very good opportunity to, um, to come into contact with uh, with these teachings and this practice. To learn how to not waste our life. Not just sleepwalk through the days. I remember when I was a kid some point in high school, I realized it just doesn't end, does it? First you go, you know, you, you go to school to try to get good grades so you can get a good college, so you can get a good job, so you can, so you can, so you can. When, when, when do you get there? <laughs> right? So we can spend our whole life waiting to get there. Henry James' story, The Beast in the Jungle, some of you may be familiar with. He spends his whole life waiting for something to happen, only to realize that he missed it. So a very wonderful opportunity. This, this practice and this path is, um, it's not meant to be something that we just do on our own when our eyes are closed or once a week when we come to a group. It's meant to transform how we live. The periods of study, practice, reflection that we engage in are like catalysts that begin a chain reaction 
a chain reaction that can transform the whole way we understand and relate to this human birth. So I started practicing meditation when I was, I was pretty young, still quite young, relatively speaking. When I was 19, when I came into contact with Buddhism and kind of dove in head first. I, much to the dismay of my Jewish parents, I went to India and went to live at a monastery for a few months. And um, <clears throat> I was a child actor at that time, doing a lot of acting in New York City. And um, as I started meditating and realized there was something much more important in life than all the things I had been, I had been told were, um, were important. <clears throat> so the, after a few years, I started practicing very, very seriously from the very beginning, practicing every day, meditating, sitting retreats. And if, after a few years, I found myself in my mid-twenties living at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, the first meditation retreat center in the Insight Meditation tradition in this country. It was founded by Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg, and others. I found myself living there and um, having all of these very meaningful experiences in meditation feeling connected to myself and feeling very inspired by the, the qualities of loving kindness or patience or wisdom that were talked about in the teachings. I was working in the kitchen at the time and what I found was that it was all was fine and well when my eyes were closed and I was sitting on the cushion. But as soon as I got into a little bit of an argument with a coworker about how long to steam the broccoli, or <laughs> how to cut the carrots. All of the wisdom and compassion seemed to evaporate. <laughs> and so I realized that you know something was missing. Because what, what good is it to be able to feel clarity and peace and love when your eyes are closed and no one's bugging you? <laughs> right? If you can't actually navigate a disagreement with a coworker. Forget about my family, you know, I'd go back down to Jersey to see the folks or something. It was, it was a regression. So, um, so I knew enough about the path at that point to recognize that it's not just about meditation. And so, you know, right now, this particular series that you guys are exploring here at IMSB on engaged practice. So the Buddha taught the Eightfold Noble Path. And, and only one, one section of that path is about meditation. There's a whole training in wisdom, how we understand the world, how we look at things. You know, are we confused? Do we mistake that which is always changing to be stable? Do we mistake that which can't ever really deliver to be somehow satisfying? It's gonna, it's gonna prom, it's gonna offer the promise of something completely fulfilling. That which can't ever do that 
Do we understand who we really are fundamentally? Do we understand the kinds of intentions or motivations that are for our welfare and for the welfare of this planet? Are we even aware of that? So this training in wisdom and how we see things. And then there's the training in, in action, in conduct, in how we live, how we, how we, how we engage with other people, how we earn our, li- our livelihood, and perhaps um, of particular significance today, how we listen and speak. So I knew enough to recognize that this path was more than meditation, but there was a piece missing. Like, how do I translate it? How do I take this stuff that I'm learning and studying and practicing on the cushion and bring it into my relationships, bring it into my conversations? How do I make it real? So it was about that time in my life that I came across the work of a man named Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, um, who was a psychologist who had trained with Carl Rogers and others in humanistic psychology. And um, Marshall grew up in Detroit in the early 40s. And he, uh, he was a little boy when the first wave of race riots occurred there in Detroit. And um, he couldn't leave his house for several days during the race riots. Several dozen people were killed just within a few blocks of his house. And this had a profound impact on him as a young child. He talked about it later in life. He said it was a very, very, um, very important education for me. He said, I learned that people might want to do violence to you because of the color of your skin in this world that we live in. And then as he grew up, went to school, um, he got bullied and beat up a lot because he was Jewish. His father's life was threatened. So he learned that people might want to harm you because of your last name. So these experiences left a a very strong imprint on his mind. Why do some people resort to violence when their needs aren't met? He also had an uncle who would come over their house um, regularly to look after his grandmother who was paralyzed. And his uncle would bathe her and feed her spend time with her, and he would be beaming, just so, so happy to get to take care of his, his mother in this way. And that also had a very profound impact on him, to witness this capacity that we have as human beings to experience joy when we give. I think it's an experience that each of us knows. How does it feel to give to someone? Not because we have to. That's not giving. Oh, just because we can. Isn't that nourishing to help out? So this this, this stark contrast between the violence and the joy. And and it, it, it left him with this question, what makes a difference between why some people, or in some moments, we as humans are able to experience so much joy and delight 
in contributing to one another. While in other instances, we resort to violence and harm one another. So what he found was that the ways in which we think and speak play a large role in whether or not we will see violence as a viable strategy in life. And he called the process that he uh, created nonviolent communication because of this, partly because of this connection that he saw between language and violence, uh, but also to place it within the tradition of, of Gandhi and King and nonviolent social change, because he also saw the connection between our language and the institutions that structure our society. And that the ways in which we think and perceive one another uh, are kind of the fundamental building blocks of our institutions. And if we see, uh, see each other through the lens of some people being superior to others, some people being more or less deserving of education or resources, those concepts then form the structures and institutions in our society. And so if we want to transform those institutions, one of the key ingredients is to transform the structures in our own minds, the consciousness through which we are seeing and relating. So this practice of nonviolent communication, even though it has that word communication in it, it's not really a communication technique. I mean, it is, but that's not what it is at the heart. At the heart, it's a transformation of our consciousness the way in which we understand and relate to ourselves and one another. So here I am living at the Insight Meditation Society, arguing about how to cut the carrots, and meditating. And I come across this nonviolent communication stuff, and it was like this like light bulb went off. Here was a practice that filled in the gap, that gave me a method to translate these values of kindness and compassion and patience and awareness and wisdom into my conversations when I disagreed with people. And even deeper, to start to transform the very judgments and perceptions in my mind from your being unreasonable or, you know, you're lazy to actually understanding what was happening in my own heart and how to communicate that in a way that others could hear. So this started a, a path of a couple of decades of really exploring the intersection between contemplative practice and communication and interpersonal relationships. And to understand, to start to understand how the two really support each other. When we have some communication tools, it gives us um, something tangible to manifest our, spiritual, our spirituality in our life. So if you're, if you're here tonight, I um, probably it's a safe assumption that you have some interest in transformation, personally or socially. And if you're interested in transformation, one of the most accessible 
And powerful ways to do that is through our communication. How much time do you have to meditate every day? Let's be real. 20 minutes? An hour? Two hours, maybe, if you make it a real priority? What about the rest of your life? What are you doing? How are you bringing it in? How many hours a day are you communicating? How many hours a day are you reading the news, looking at your social media feed? How many hours a day are you thinking, telling a story about your life, that inner narrative going? We're communicating all day long, every day, all day, at home, at work, with friends. If you want to transform something, take a look at your communication. If you make one change in the way you communicate, it'll change your whole life. Because we're doing it all day long with everyone. If you want to experience more freedom in your heart, if you want to experience more kindness, compassion for yourself, change the way you talk to yourself. Very powerful. I want, I want to read to you just a few paragraphs from the, um, from the opening of my, of my book, from the introduction. What we say matters. We've each felt the power that words can have to heal, soothe, or uplift us. Even one caring remark can make the difference between giving up and finding the strength to face life's challenges. We each also know something of the great harm that can be inflicted through speech. Sharp words laced with anger or cruelty can break a relationship and burn for years. Language can be used to manipulate and coerce on a mass scale to fuel fear, war, and oppression, or to advance political agendas of genocide or terror. Few things so powerful are also so commonplace. Words are woven into the fabric of our lives. Your first love, your first job, your last goodbye to someone you love, our beginnings and endings and the countless moments in between are punctuated by a play of words as we share our thoughts, feelings, and desires. The creation myths of many cultures and religions through time, East, West, and indigenous, recognize the generative power of words, giving the potency of speech a key role in the beginning of the cosmos. Indeed, words have the power to shape our reality. As we think, so we perceive. As we perceive, so we act. Moreover, the teachings of all world religions reflect a universal understanding about the ethical implications of language, its potential for good or harm, 
and include moral guidelines around the appropriate use of speech. What we say matters, perhaps now more than ever. We live in times of great change in which much is being asked of us. We live at a time when we are less and less able to listen and really hear one another in society. At a time when those with different views, beliefs, or backgrounds are once again so easily cast as the other. At this time, when great forces of political, social, economic, and environmental change are sweeping the globe and intensifying our separation from self, others, and life, we need to learn how to speak and listen in a new way. There's more I could go on. (laughs) So it's powerful stuff, our communication. And I think the Buddha understood this. You know, so many of you have studied some of the Buddha's teachings, and you know that in the Noble Eightfold Path, right there after the training in wisdom, the very next thing is about our speech, even before our actions, before meditation. The Buddha's pointing very clearly, saying, "If look, if you're interested in living a meaningful life and not causing pain for yourselves or others, pay attention to what you say. Don't lie. Don't use speech in ways that, that's harsh. Don't use speech to separate people or pit them against one another. And don't waste your words. Don't, don't say things that are pointless or meaningless, just kind of babbling for no reason at all. So the fundamental point here is that um, we can actually train ourselves to communicate more skillfully. Not just uh, what we say, but why we say it, how we say it, how we listen, if we're even listening at all, and how we, how we think, how we think about things, how we speak to ourselves, how we perceive the world. All of that, all of that can actually be molded and shaped so that's, that's what my book is about. And what I'd like to do with some of the time that we have left is I'd like to just sketch out a few of the main teachings in my book, which is it's kind of this system that I've come up with to summarize um, a comprehensive training in communication. So, um, so there are three steps. I'll tell you what they are. I'll give you a practice that you can leave here tonight with for each of them. Um, And I'll tell you a few stories. Also, if you want, I'll give you some some free stuff. We tend to like stuff here in the West. There's free postcards, and each of them has a little teaching on it from the book. You can put it on your refrigerator. You can give it to to your partner or your parent. Hopefully some of it will rub off on them, their communication. So how do we do this? How do we bring, how do we bring our, our spiritual practice and our deep values into our communication and our relationships? 
So it's a training in three different areas. We need to train in presence. We need to learn how to be here. We need to train our intentions. We need to learn where we're coming from and make sure that it's actually helpful. And we need to train our attention. What are we looking at? What are we focusing on? Are we paying attention to the things that that are actually going to help us to understand one another? Or are we paying attention to things that are going to separate us more, pit us against one another? So each of these trainings in presence, intention, and attention has a a step to it, kind of a a pith teaching to to work with. So this is what I want to talk about. So the the first training is in presence. And the, 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 the step of training here is to learn how to do something that I call leading with presence. How to lead with presence. So communication is fundamentally about understanding. Regardless of the context or the situation, the currency of communication is meaning. We are sending and receiving messages. In order to produce meaning and understanding, there needs to be awareness. The mind needs to be attentive and present, otherwise understanding does not occur. Meaning is not created. If you space out for a minute and start thinking about what you're gonna cook for yourself for dinner, for a snack when you get home, you won't hear what I'm saying and you'll miss a, you'll miss a piece of the meaning. Your ears are still working, but you're, you're not present, so you don't hear the message, it doesn't go in. Just think about how many misunderstandings or arguments you've had just because somebody wasn't paying attention. Right? Simple. But we forget. We forget this. So to lead with presence most fundamentally means that, for, that we first and foremost we just show up. We train ourselves to learn how to begin a conversation from a place of awareness and how to come back to and maintain that awareness through the conversation. Many, many benefits to this. Gives us a lot of information about what's happening for ourselves or someone else. Allows us to handle our reactivity, to not be on automatic in the conversation. To lead with presence. Leading with presence means that before anything else, before our words, our feelings, what happened, what we'd like the other person to do, our agenda, all of that, can we just show up? Can we just be here with the other person? And this does something very important. When we're actually present with another human being, it changes the space. We can feel it when someone's really present with us. Communicate something very important. It says, you matter to me. This matters to me. I'm giving you my time. Giving you my precious life energy. That changes the atmosphere of the conversation. And we can feel it when someone's not really present, right? Someone can be looking you right in the eyes and you're talking and it's, where are they? They're not there, right? Forget about pulling out the phone or all the other ways we distract ourselves these days. 
So this is the foundation. If we can't be present, we can't draw on our wisdom, our best intentions, any of the things that we've learned. We're just on automatic. So one of the things that I do is teach retreats. And I, I, I love teaching silent meditation retreats, a very powerful way of understanding and transforming our mind and our heart. I also love teaching interactive retreats. <clears throat> so on these retreats, many of them, we go back and forth from silence to speech. We do silent meditation, quiet the mind, look within, and then we practice speaking and listening exploring the realm of interpersonal relations, seeing the patterns that structure those relationships. So I was teaching a retreat this past summer in New Mexico with my colleague Donald Rothberg, who lives here in Berkeley. He and I teach this stuff together very, very uh, periodically. Every, every year we teach a few retreats together. Um, at the end of the retreat, we had a circle. People were just sharing you know, one or two things that they take away from the retreat. You know, what did you learn? And so the microphone came around to this one uh, older gentleman in his, probably his mid-70s, um, gray hair, kind of cowboy type, from Colorado. He'd been pretty quiet the whole week. <clears throat> so I was kind of curious, you know, like, what's this, what's this guy going to take away? You know, what's this guy going to say? What's he, what's he learned this week? So he takes this long pause and he says, what I learned this week is that my wife is the person I talk to the most, but talk with the least. I'm going to change that when I go home. That's the power of leading with presence. We recognize that there's another human being in front of us. And that's the foundation of a real conversation. So how do we do this? How do we learn to lead with presence? Many, many tools for this. Many, many different steps of training that we can take. I want to give you just, 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 just two tonight. Um, because different, different tools work for different people. So one, see if you can feel your body. Just a little bit. Feel, feel your weight, the weight of your body. Feel your hands. So just even right now as you're listening, can you be aware of the contact with the chair or the sensations in your hands? Not that hard. Can you stay aware of it just a little bit so you don't, so you don't disappear, so you don't lose yourself? in the listening. This is one way of learning to lead with presence. When we're aware of a sensation, we are for that moment present because sensations don't exist in the past or the future. So if you can feel your body a little bit, that's one way to learn how to start to lead with presence in a conversation. Another very powerful way of bringing more presence and awareness into your conversations is to pause doesn't need to be a long pause, half a breath, between phrases, between sentences. So this is one of, the, one of the little postcards I have out there. It says, pause, one breath can change what you say next. 
Imagine all of the grief you could have saved yourself in life. <laughs> Pausing before you hit send on that email or text message. Just, just wait. Do I want to say this? Where am I coming from? So take one of these and play around with it in your life. See if you can feel your body a little bit. Take a pause. Notice the effect that starts to have on your conversations. <clears throat> so lead with presence. This is the training in, in mindful awareness and presence. First foundation. Second foundation of mindful communication is about our intention, where we're coming from. One of the things we start to notice as we become more mindful and present in our lives, in our conversations, is uh, the quality of intention, of motivation. What's driving my actions? Where am I coming from inside? Am I trying to be right? Am I wanting to control the situation? Am I blaming or judging the other person? And what are the results of those kinds of intentions? Has being right ever brought you closer to someone? And if you look even more deeply, has it ever really given you the deep satisfaction of being understood that you long for? It's a strategy, being right. Usually it doesn't deliver. We want to be seen. We want to be understood. So we can, start to, we can start to notice some of our habitual training. You know, we all have certain habits with communication based on our upbringing, our culture, how we've been you know, trained to identify with a certain gender. So we're, we're operating from a lot of habit and conditioning in our intentions. And we can start to become aware of those and choose more helpful intentions and conversations. Many helpful intentions we can have. The, the one that I encourage people to practice as a baseline, as the default, is the genuine intention to understand. This is perhaps the single and most transformative ingredient in a dialogue, is our intention. Because just like being present starts to change the relational space, when we're coming from a, a, a healthy, positive intention, the other person feels that. They pick up on it. When someone's really trying to understand you, how does that feel? We don't need to worry about defending ourselves so much or protecting things. We can start to open up because there's, there's someone who's actually receptive on the other side. Doesn't mean we agree with everyone but we just genuinely want, genuinely want to understand. A lot of our communication is also nonverbal. Body language, expression, gesture, tone of voice. What's shaping much of that nonverbal communication is our intention, where we're coming from. So this is why when someone says one thing, but those, those nonverbal signals are sending a different message, which do we believe? Which do we trust, right? We trust that underlying message. It's that intention that we pick up on that's shaping all of that. 
So the step of training here is to learn how to come from curiosity and care. These are two aspects of the genuine intention to understand. The curiosity is, let me see if I can just understand where you're coming from. The care is part of the genuineness. It means that we're connected to what's important to us, to our heart, to our own values. We know what we care about. One of the stories that I, I um, came across when I was doing a little bit of reading and research for my book is a story about the power of intention. The man by the name of Daryl Davis, African-American actor and author and jazz musician, plays piano. He had a similar experience to Marshall Rosenberg when he was a young child of violence. He was um, in, in a, living in an all-white town outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and uh, joined the Cub Scouts. And they were marching down the street, and the people started throwing rocks and bottles and fruit at him because he was black. He'd grown up overseas, so he didn't understand why people were doing this, because he hadn't learned yet that people could hate you because of the color of your skin. Hadn't been exposed to the horrific kind of disease of racism in our country. So he had his father had to explain to him what was happening, and he said, "Little ten-year-old boy said, but how can they hate me if they don't know me? How can they hate me if they don't know me?" So his question stayed alive in him in his heart. So he was playing a gig down in Southern Maryland at an all-white bar in the 1980s. And after one of the sets, this um, white man comes up to him and says, you know, you, you play pretty good for, uh, you, you play um, almost as good as Jerry Lee Lewis. I've never heard a black man play as good as Jerry Lee Lewis. So if you don't know anything about jazz music, Jerry Lee Lewis is a white piano player. So Daryl Davis kind of smiles and says, you know, it's kind of funny because um, I know Jerry Lee. He's a friend of mine, and Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play piano from African-American musicians like myself. This white guy's kind of taken back. He says, oh, I, I, I didn't, didn't know that. So they, they sit down, have a drink, start talking. And... Um, Daryl Davis is just very curious, just wants to understand this person so different from him. It turns out this guy's a member of the KKK. Daryl's very curious about this and wants to understand why he's in this organization and what he believes. So they, uh, they, they develop a friendship and they stay in touch. And um, over the course of many conversations and meetings, this guy starts to see that his views don't match his experience anymore through, through his contact with Daryl. Um, Daryl talks about how he was just very curious, just wanted to understand this person, wanted to understand how he saw things. He didn't, uh, you know, he didn't try to change his mind or, or say, you know, you're wrong at first. Just really listened, showed respect and kindness, patience. So this, uh, this gentleman ends up actually leaving the organization through his conversations with Daryl. Not only that, Daryl decides he's going to write a book and wants to learn more about the KKK and why, why people join and believe the, the beliefs that they have. So 
make a long story short, through this one relationship, Daryl ends up interviewing many members of the KKK in that area and establishing friendships with them. Between 40 and 50 members of the organization leave just through their conversations with Daryl. Several of them give Daryl their robe and hoods. And indirectly, more than 200 people end up leaving the organization. The whole, the whole organization collapsed, Southern Maryland. The Grand Wizard asked Daryl to be his daughter's godfather. And Daryl talks about what was, what was his method was, was respect and kindness and curiosity, just really listening, wanting to, wanting to develop a genuine connection with these people, to understand them. To see how can you hate me if you don't know me? This is the power of our intention. It can transform a whole relationship, a whole conversation. So come from curiosity and care. How do we do this? So um, again, I'll give you two tools. One of them's on the postcard. It says learning begins with the willingness to not know. As soon as you think you know something, you're not learning. This is, as, this is as true in meditation as it is in life, as it is in conversations. So can we be humble enough to recognize, maybe I don't know what you're saying. Can I actually listen? Just to remember that. Another tool we can use to come from curiosity and care, and again, there are many, but one other thing you can start to practice is you can... You can remind yourself to get interested with a short phrase. So say something like, let me see if I'm understanding you. Let me see if I'm with you. Let me see if I've got it. Find your own words. But just just that little phrase, let me see if I'm hearing you, it reminds us to check, to actually listen to really be curious and want to understand the other person. And it sends a signal to them that we're trying to understand. Very powerful, very transformative. So lead with presence. Come from curiosity and care. The third training is training our attention. What are we focusing on? What are we looking at? This is where the training in nonviolent communication comes in, Marshall Rosenberg's method for identifying and staying conscious of four particular aspects of our experience. Our observations, what happened, what are we reacting to? Distinct from our interpretations, evaluations, and judgments, all of the, all of the filters that we overlay on reality. Is it more true to say that you're being rude or to say that you spoke to me in a way I didn't enjoy? Which is true. Rude is an interpretation. What's rude to one person is not rude to another. Are we living in the reality of your being rude or are we aware of our own experience? Very, very profound training, learning to make clear observations. So what happened? How do we feel about it? What emotions are present for us? Are we actually even aware of the emotions? And more importantly, why? We feel things for a reason. We feel emotions because there's some deeper need or value that's been stimulated. Are we aware of what actually matters to us in a situation? Are we aware of what matters to someone else, what their deeper needs, concerns, or values are? So what happened? How do we feel about it? Why? 
observations, feelings, needs. And then last, where do we go from here? Can we make a request? Do we have an idea? Some proposal for how do we move this thing forward? Just right now, right here between the two of us, what do I think is going to be useful? How about this? So this, this, this form of observations, feelings, needs, requests, it's not a script, it's a training. It's a training model to train our attention to stay aware of certain components in our experience that help us to be more clear about what's happening inside and help us to learn how to hear what's going on for someone else underneath the blame, the judgment, the stories that they may be telling. To just get to the point, well, what's actually happening? How do you feel about it? Why? What's important to you? What would you like to see happen next? It neutralizes the whole argument when we can, when we can listen and speak in this way. So training our attention. I told you you'd get gifts. Focus on what matters. The rest is extra. Learn how to do that in your conversations. What's most important here? Just hold that framework. So these three trainings um, can really transform our life. And they give us a roadmap to follow for bringing our practice into the world, for our work of engagement, whether it's at your job, with your family, you're raising kids, working for social change, how to stay connected to your values, how to set up the foundation for the right conditions for having an effective, meaningful conversation in any context. And it's very possible. It's not far. It's just one small change at a time. If you make one change in your communication and stick with it, you will see dramatic changes in your relationships in your life. And then that inspires you to keep going, to make another change. So think about what I've shared tonight. Take a few, take a few postcards. I've got, men, I've got plenty. Um, and, you know, think about something that you, you want to practice. You want to practice pausing, feel your body, lead with presence. Come from curiosity and care. Let me see if I'm hearing you. See if I'm with you. You genuinely get curious, recognize it, what you don't know. You might learn something. And focus on what matters. This is the third training in attention. Focus on what matters, what's most important. And then what we find as we practice with these, with these tools and these trainings is that um, it enhances our meditation practice. It starts this kind of... Um, reciprocal relationship where the, the, the more we are able to stay connected to our values and our conversations and relationships, the clearer our mind is when we come to sit down to meditate. The less junk there is left over. And then the clearer we are in our, in our meditation practice, the easier it is to stay connected to our heart and our intentions and our conversations. Thank you so much for your kind attention. I hope it's useful. So I went on and on, and um, we're at the end of our time. I usually like to do questions, but I kind of got on a roll. 
So, um, as, uh, as, as Janet mentioned, um, I'll hang out for a little bit. If anyone wants to um, have a, a copy of, of uh, the book signed or just to say hello, um, I guess, I guess I'll, I'll mention, um, you know, the, the book is really a field guide. It's really, it's a, it's a training, it's a step-by-step -step training that takes you through this model and how to do it. It comes with some guided meditations that are free on my website um, and exercises and practices for, for each of these steps. Um, and then maybe the last thing I'll say is um, if this has been meaningful for you, um, if you find some value in the way I think about things or express them, I would love to stay in touch. Um, and the best way to do that is through my email list. Uh, I send out two emails a month. I won't spam you. And um, I put a lot of thought and care into each email I send and try to include something that I think will be valuable. A talk that I gave, an article that I've written, a link to a free online event, and so forth. And um, here, here's the, um, the bonus. Um, when you, when you uh, sign up, you get um, a free guided meditation series and uh, a short ebook that I wrote on contemplative practice. So I like to give things... So you'll, you'll receive those when you sign up. But the, the trick is that you actually you have to print your email address clearly or my assistant won't be able to read it. So, and then as Janet mentioned, there's some, um, some flyers for upcoming retreats and programs both on communication and meditation that I have coming. So, so thank you so much again for taking some time out of your life to, to share uh, this evening together. And I hope to see you again down the line. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.